Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I'd like to thank all of you for being a part of this journey into history and literature with me at 1001 Stories Network. Your presence, your listening, your sharing our shows with others, your feedback at Twitter and Facebook are all deeply appreciated. Your emails and direct messages, your subscribing to our shows, your reviews, and your support at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network are also enjoyed and appreciated very much. I read your reviews daily and enjoy them. The general message is that we are appreciated, our stories are well done and well chosen, and that we help you through your drive or your walk, your run, or just your relaxed time. In many different ways, we help to make your day more enjoyable. Sometimes you send me possible ideas for shows, names of people and places that history is largely forgotten, and I research them to see if the story can carry a full episode. And if it can, and I like the story, I'll run with it. Sometimes I'll store the smaller stories away for future use. They're not usually stories of big events. Sometimes they're just footnotes which are relatively unknown, but important in their own way. The first volume of American Patchwork is a collection of stories which I believe will interest, entertain, and inform you, and give you something interesting to bring up in conversation when the table gets quiet. These stories run the gamut from history bits to politics to music to short biographies to legends with some personal recollections added along the way. I think you will enjoy them. So buckle up, grab your favorite drink, and enjoy a little American Patchwork, Volume 1. Our first story is about the man who didn't discover America, Bjarni Haraldsson, a Viking. And yes, he had it in his sights. But his destination was Greenland, before a big nor'easter blew his ship westward to Canada. And when the storm cleared and he finally saw land, it wasn't Greenland. There were no mountains or glaciers, just rolling hills and green forests. He had no itch to explore a new land. He turned back east and finally made it to Greenland. Years later, he shared that adventure with his friend, Leif Erikson. And Leif not only bought the story, he bought Bjarni's ship and used it for his voyage of discovery, a voyage that would forever enshrine Leif Erikson's name in the halls of history and exploration. There was another famous ship that was blown off course. It was called the Mayflower, which was headed for Virginia, but ended up reaching shore in what we now call Plymouth, Massachusetts. They knew they were far north of their destination, but they were running short of victuals, meaning food and drink. And as one of the Pilgrim's journals tells us, they were running short of beer. The Pilgrims were apparently craft beer aficionados, and they knew how to brew it, so they made port at Plymouth. Beer was considered an essential part of every man's diet back then, while water, believe it or not, was suspect. Maybe they'd heard of the terrible problems that Jamestown had suffered just a few years before, problems that came from the lack of clean, potable fresh water, and decided that beer was the best solution. At any rate, the cooper, John Alden, quickly erected a brew house as well as a number of barrels and whipped up a new batch to quench their thirst, and Plymouth, Massachusetts became the new home to the pilgrims. So I guess you could say Plymouth Colony was founded by a bunch of guys who needed to make a beer run. The most amazing part of the beer story at Plymouth happened in March of 1621, when an Indian walked into their settlement and said, in perfect English, Welcome Englishman, I am Samoset. Do you have any beer? As it turns out, he had learned the language from his contact with English fishing vessels. Small world. <laughs> 
a post-note. When my great-grandfather several times removed, and his name was William Bassett, arrived on the fortune with his wife Elizabeth, the fortune being the second ship to reach Plymouth, I can only imagine how glad he was to know that there was a source of home-crafted brew waiting for him. I discovered that little piece of family history with the help of Ancestry.com when we worked together a year or so ago to do a few interviews. Our next story I'm calling The Unread Message. We all have busy lives, and we all tend to overlook things, especially at holidays, you know, with parties, drinks, and lots of people and things going on to distract you. Well, the Hessian commander at Trenton, whose name was Colonel Rawl, was having a pretty good time playing cards and enjoying the warmth of a good fire, along with tablefuls of good food on that Christmas Eve in 1776, while the troops under George Washington were freezing and starving in their camp on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River, just 20 miles away. Washington and his men were exhausted, having been defeated in New York and New Jersey and pursued south by William Howe's forces relentlessly. The Continental Congress had refused warm clothing for his troops. Morale was low, and his men needed a victory. Meanwhile, Colonel Rawl, enjoying a game of cards with his officers, was briefly interrupted by the delivery of a handwritten message from a local farmer who was sympathetic to the British cause. Rawl was involved in his card game and tucked the note away in his shirt pocket without reading it. Washington, knowing that a victory would not only unite his army, but also bring more attention and support to his cause, responded by planning a daring assault on the Hessian garrison, and on Christmas Eve, his army crossed the icy Delaware River and marched 19 miles through the cold and the snow, some of his men without boots, to Trenton. He sent flanking movements under the command of Generals Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan to surround the German garrison, while Colonel Henry Knotts's cannons with the help of young Alexander Hamilton, fired upon the garrison. They opened their attack at daybreak Christmas morning. Their powder was so wet that many of their guns couldn't fire, so they fought with bayonets attached to their muskets and used their muskets as clubs. It was a complete surprise to the Hessians, and to Colonel Rawl, who had managed to mount his horse, but was shot soon after. Nine hundred Hessians were taken prisoner. It was a huge victory for the Continental Army, and the beginning of a string of victories that would continue at Princeton just ten days later. As the doctor cut away Colonel Rawls' clothes to treat his wound, that little slip of paper fell out. Rawls asked the doctor to read it to him. It was a warning that the garrison was about to be attacked. Rawls' last words, If I had read this, I would not be here. Sometimes it's the little things that count the biggest when it comes to overlooked problems. And you know, we often think of George Washington as being our first president, but he wasn't. He was the first president elected under the Constitution. But America had actually been governed by the Articles of Confederation for eight years by the time Washington was elected. He was the first president elected under the Constitution, and he was elected in 1789. But America had actually been governed by the Articles of Confederation for the eight years previous to that, after defeating the British. In 1781, when the blast of the 13 colonies ratified the Articles of Confederation, a new America was christened. But who deleted? Congress unanimously nominated John Hanson of Maryland to be the first President of the United States. He was given a house and servants, and it was ruled that he took precedence of all and every person in the United States. Hanson served only one year, and six other men served as President 
before George Washington took the vows. Interestingly enough, when Hansen was voted in by Congress, a colleague wrote him, I congratulate your excellency on your appointment to fill the most important seat in the United States. And that letter was signed by none other than, you guessed it, George Washington. Under Hansen's leadership, Congress established the Treasury Department. They adapted the great seal of the U.S., which is still in use today, and declared the fourth Thursday of every November as a day of Thanksgiving. We all know it's our civic duty to vote. Many people don't bother because they figured that their one vote isn't going to make any difference. But that isn't always true. One hot summer day in 1842, an Indiana farmhand named Henry Shoemaker was working hard when he suddenly remembered that today was election day. He had personally promised his vote to a man named Madison Marsh, who was a Democrat running for the office of state representative. A man's word was his bond back in those days, and Shoemaker saddled up and rode to the polling place to cast his one vote. When the votes were counted, Madison Marsh was elected by one vote. Fast forward now to 1843, when Marsh and his fellow state legislators convened for a special election for a state senator. Marsh changed his vote on the sixth ballot and elected Democrat Edward Hennigan to the United States Senate, allowing him to win by one vote, as it turned out. Fast forward again to 1846, when the U.S. Senate was hotly debating over whether or not to go to war with Mexico over California. A caucus vote was deadlocked until the absent Senator Hennigan was called. He had cast his vote in favor of war. And that was the vote, the one vote, that tipped the scales. The U.S. declared war on Mexico, and as a result of winning that war, the U.S. got California. Not to mention that Hennigan also cast a deciding vote to give statehood to Texas. So who says your one vote doesn't count? Music has always had a special hold on me. For years I collected 45 RPM records and got to know the history of many of the groups and the songs that came out in the 50s and 60s, my favorite decades for music. And I also enjoy older song history. You might remember the episode we did on the history of Tin Pan Alley. Well, we've all heard the song Dixie, which was the adopted song of the South. In 1861 it was played at the inauguration of President Jefferson Davis, and soon after it became the marching song for the Confederate Army. I mentioned the word adopted above because that song, the Anthem of the South, was actually written in a New York hotel room by a man from Ohio named Daniel Decatur Emmett. When he published it in 1859, it was an instant hit. And by the end of the week, Emmett would later write, everybody in New York was whistling it. When the song began to be popularized in the South at the start of the Civil War just a couple years later, Emmett, who was a staunch Union supporter, was furious. If I'd have known to what use they were going to put my song, he said, I'll be damned if I'd have written it. The day after Robert E. Lee surrendered, President Lincoln asked a band outside the White House to strike up Dixie. Lincoln was quoted once to have said, I always thought Dixie was one of the best tunes I'd ever heard. Our adversaries over the way attempted to appropriate it, but we have fairly captured it. Dan Emmett was also known for writing Jimmy Crack Corn and Old Dan Tucker. He also mellowed in his older age. He came to cherish the South's love for the song, and in 1895, at the age of 80, he made a farewell tour across the South and sang the song to standing ovations all along the way.
Elvis Presley also had a curious connection with Dixie, both the song and the person, whose name was Dixie Locke. She was Elvis's girlfriend and first love from early 1954 until October of 1955. She was 14 years old when she first saw Elvis at the First Assembly of God Church in Memphis in January of 1954. And she made sure he was nearby when he overheard a conversation between her and her friends about their plans to go roller skating that weekend. The trap was set. Elvis did go to the roller rink. They officially met and found they had a lot of shared interests, one being gospel music. And they started dating. Two weeks later, he brought Dixie home to meet his parents, Vernon and Gladys. When graduation time came, Elvis's career started to take off with the success of That's All Right Mama, and they went in separate directions. But Dixie always stayed in touch with Vernon and Gladys for the remainder of their lives. In 1971, Elvis recorded an American trilogy, a medley that included the song Dixie, and that song became one of his staple concert songs until his life and career suddenly ended on August 16, 1977. There were so many great songs from the 50s and 60s that I find it hard to pick a favorite top 10. But there is one song that stands out above the rest, and it's called Save the Last Dance for Me. It's been done by a number of artists, from Bon Jovi to Bruce Springsteen to Tina Turner to even Bruce Willis. But my favorite version was sung by the Drifters in 1960. You might recognize these lyrics. Don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're going to be. So darling, save the last dance for me. Pretty powerful stuff, written from the viewpoint of a guy who for some reason couldn't dance with the girl he loved, and his plea is that she saved the last dance for him. Actually, that song does have a story behind it. The story begins with a young Jewish kid growing up in New York City whose name was Jerry Felder. He was a huge fan of blues artist Big Joe Turner, and he wanted to be a blues singer just like Turner. Not an easy task for a short white Jewish kid, but Felder wasn't to be deterred from his goal. At age 16, he started performing in blues clubs under the name of Doc Pomus, and he started writing songs between gigs to make money. His songwriting was to prove much more lucrative than his singing, especially after he teamed up with composer Mort Schumann, and they started knocking out huge hits like Teenager in Love, which Dion and the Belmonts took to number one. This magic moment, which was picked up by the Drifters, and Viva Las Vegas, which became a big hit for Elvis, but there was one song that was more personal, more heartfelt than any of the teenage angst songs he had done before. He wrote the lyrics to it late one night on the back of an old wedding invitation, recalling the day three years earlier that he had married Broadway actress Willie Burke. It was a joyful occasion, but there was one moment that was bittersweet, the moment when the band struck up the tune that was intended for the new bride and groom. As a child, Jerry had been struck with polio, and it took major difficulty just to walk. As a blues singer, he had had to hang on to his crutches just to sing, and although he was good, that didn't help his stage presence. Here at his wedding now, he urged Willie to dance with other guests. All he could do was watch with mixed emotions as she danced with partner after partner. He wanted her to enjoy herself, but oh, how he wanted to be the one she was dancing with, and that feeling really came out through the lyrics, which went... Oh, I know that the music's fine, like sparkling wine. Go and have your fun. Laugh and sing, but while we're apart, don't give your heart to anyone. And don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're going to be. So, darling, save the last dance 
for me. Great songs just have a way of staying with you. Ever wonder where the name karaoke came from? Daisuli Inoue was the drummer and business manager for a bar band in Kobe, Japan. Of the 108 club musicians in Kobe, Inoue once said, I was the worst. The band just managed to eke out a living playing instrumental versions of popular Japanese songs while middle-aged businessmen grabbed the microphone and belted out the lyrics. One customer, the president of a steel plant, asked Inoue one day if he could bring the band on a business trip and play backup for him there. Inoue couldn't make it, so he made a tape for him. The man gladly paid for the tape, and the meeting turned out to be a big success for him. More importantly, it gave Inoue an idea. He and his band constructed 11 homemade boxes with tapes of their instrumental music and leased them to bars back in the 70s. It consisted of a car stereo, a coin box, and a small amp. He didn't patent it. The thought never occurred to him at the time. He had no idea that he had started a worldwide trend that would just keep on morphing and growing. The Japanese used a single word term to describe it that translates as empty orchestra, referring to a recording with no vocal track. And that single Japanese word was karaoke. Are you ready for some football? As for this spring of 2020, most of us are ready for just about anything as long as it doesn't require a mask. Well, it was 1905, and the fledgling sport of American football was in trouble. The game had become so brutal that more than 100 student players had actually died playing it. College presidents were disbanding teams. Several state legislatures were tied up with the knotty question of whether or not to make football illegal. President Teddy Roosevelt was a big fan of football. His son played football at Harvard. Roosevelt called for reform, fearing that the game would be banned. That inspired the creation of a new rules committee, and one committee member suggested an idea which had been long advocated by the legendary coach John Heisman, that idea being to legalize the forward pass. That, they figured, would open up the game and help to prevent the mass collisions that were getting people killed. The New York Times, on the wrong side of issues even then, called the idea radical. The head of the Rules Committee was opposed to it as well, but nevertheless, it was adopted for the 1906 season, along with rules that outlawed holding and unnecessary roughness and required a team to gain 10 yards instead of the 5 yards, which were currently the rule to get a first down. Football's first forward pass came on September 22, 1906, when St. Louis University quarterback Brad Robinson heaved the ball to Jack Schneider in a game against Carroll College. Robinson later became the mayor of St. Louis. St. Louis's coach, Eddie Kokums, an unsung pioneer of the passing game, was among the first to teach his players how to throw the football by placing their fingers on the laces to get a good grip and spiral when releasing. And those forward passes? All thanks to a smart and timely play by Teddy Roosevelt. Football had been saved. I am always on the hunt for good stories, and as I mentioned at the top, some are too short to make a 45-minute to one-hour episode. The Marquis de Lafayette is one of my favorite characters from the American Revolution, and I came across a very unusual story that involved him about a month ago. That young Frenchman became an important figure during the American Revolution, and George Washington forged a strong bond with him. Lafayette was tested as a leader and proved himself worthy in a number of battles, after which he was elevated to the rank of Major General and served with Washington at Valley Forge, during the terrible winter of 1777-78. 
By 1778, the colonials were running short of arms, ammunition, and supplies, and funding was desperately needed. So with Lafayette's help, a sum of $50,000 in gold coins and bullion was raised secretly by the French, and in July of 1778, the gold, along with a significant amount of supplies and ammunition, was loaded on the French frigate the Dupre. The destination for delivery of the gold involved an unpopulated island in the Chesapeake Bay called Smith Island. Lafayette handpicked 12 men who set off in longboats to Smith Island to meet the Dupre in mid-August of 1778, and when they arrived, the 13 men, Lafayette included, camped in a thick grove of trees and awaited the arrival of the ship. When they finally did spot the Dupre coming, it was arriving up from the south. Unfortunately, a British flotilla consisting of six warships rounded the northern end of the island, bearing down upon the Dupre, which didn't see them because they were preoccupied with dropping anchor and lowering the sails. In horror, the thirteen men watched helplessly as the Dupre was brutally attacked with no chance of escape. The ship was hit multiple times from British cannon fire and sunk to the bottom of the sea within minutes of the attack, taking the gold and the crew to the floor of the bay, where it was forgotten. Interest was rekindled in 1991 when a beachcomber found a 1777 French gold coin washed up on the western side of the island following a big storm. But no more coins were ever found. Smith Island sits right on the Maryland-Virginia line about halfway up in the Chesapeake Bay, and it's known for its relaxing atmosphere and great seafood. Another one of my favorite story topics is UFOs. That recent episode we did on Roswell was a huge hit with listeners. There's another much older UFO story that's rarely heard of, and I thought it might interest you. It's called the Aurora Incident, and it's named after the town of Aurora, Texas, which is located just off Highway 287, not far from Fort Worth. Around 6 a.m. on the morning of April 19, 1897, according to an article in the Dallas Morning News written by E.E. E. Hayden, a strange craft described as an airship sailed over the Aurora Public Square and continued northward toward the property of Judge J.S. Proctor. Flying low to the ground, the craft struck the judge's windmill, toppling it and destroying the adjacent water tank. A moment later, the craft exploded, sending debris over several acres. Keep in mind that we had not invented flight yet, so if this was a made-up story, it was way out there. The newspaper article went on to say that the ship had a pilot, whose remains, although badly disfigured, showed him not to be of this world. Papers found on the pilot reportedly contained writing that looked like hieroglyphics, and no one could make any sense of them. It could not be determined what powered the craft. The pilot of the ship was carried to the Aurora Cemetery and given a Christian burial, and a marker just outside the cemetery still stands today in memory of the event. Most of the debris was gathered up and dumped into a well that was located beneath the windmill, while a few of the pieces were buried along with the alien in the cemetery. About four days after the newspaper story hit, some military personnel stopped by and gathered up some of the remaining debris, and nothing more was mentioned about the incident for another 50 years. In 1945, Aurora resident Brawley Oates purchased Judge Proctor's property and cleaned out the debris from the well so he could use it as a water source. But over time, Oates developed a severe case of arthritis, which he claimed resulted from the drinking water that had been contaminated by that wreckage. In 1957, he sealed the well up and placed a concrete slab over it. The incident in Aurora had slipped into obscurity until 1973, 
a UPI report revived the now 75-year-old story and announced that legal proceedings were underway to exhume the body of the pilot. But as it turned out, that request went nowhere as the Aurora Cemetery Association blocked all rights to excavate the grounds in search of the body, and no one was sure exactly where the body had been buried anyway. Meanwhile, some people started digging into the original newspaper story and surmised that it might have been a hoax, as it was written soon after the town of Aurora had suffered some calamities, namely a fire and a spotted fever epidemic. And then they'd been told that the railroad had decided to bypass them for another bigger town. So in desperation, as the theory goes, the writer was trying to bring attention and fame to the town by creating the story. In early 2000, an investigative team arrived in Aurora and uncovered a grave marker that appeared to show a flying saucer of some sort. Using a metal detector, they were able to get some strong readings immediately below the marker. The team requested permission to excavate the site and exhume the body and the metal, but the request was denied. In 2008, Tim Oates, the owner of the property where the spacecraft crashed, allowed the investigators to unseal the well and examine any debris they could find. They did, and found high concentrations of aluminum, but no metal debris. And that's where it stands today. A number of TV shows have done episodes on the Aurora incident, and a movie was made. What actually happened there back in 1897 has never been exactly clear. Maybe it was a hoax, and maybe not. We'll probably never know. We'll return to our show right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our show. And then there's the people stories. The characters that make history so interesting. And one of those characters was Martha Jane Canary, also known as Calamity Jane. Her name keeps popping up in my searches, most recently in the story of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, where she was rumored to have been there on the steamer when it carried the wounded back to civilization. Since it was only a rumor, I didn't include it, but it wouldn't surprise me. She had done a lot of bouncing around in the American West of the 1870s and 80s. She dressed like a man, cussed like a man, and could handle wagons with any size teams. It was said she carried a mean bullwhip for that purpose. Around 1875, she passed herself off as a man so she could go on a Black Hills expedition with Professor Walter Jenny. The next spring, she signed up as a mule schooner with General Crook as he traveled into Montana chasing the Sioux Indians. That was the spring of 76, and that was one of the three prongs that was supposed to close the trap on Sitting Bull, but Crook never made it. I'm sure she was there when Crook's regiment was attacked by Indians. She was said to be good with a rifle, and as a mule skinner, she didn't have to use those single-shot Army-issue Springfield rifles. She no doubt had a Henry or a Winchester repeating rifle. In fact, I just took a minute, I'm looking at her picture now, and she's carrying a Henry. Legend has it that her sex was found out while working in Crook's campaign, as she avoided bathing and when finally challenged to shuck her clothes and jump in, things were hard to hide, so Crook had no choice but to let her go. It was against regulations to have a female on board. In her autobiography, here's how she explained how she was given the name Calamity Jane. She said it happened in Goose Creek, Wyoming, where the town of Sheridan is now located. Captain Egan was in command of the post. She wrote, We were ordered out to quell an uprising of the Indians and were out for several days and had numerous skirmishes, during which six of our soldiers were killed and several others severely wounded. Captain Egan was shot. I was riding in advance, and of hearing the firing, I saw the captain reeling in his saddle as though about to fall. 
I turned my horse and galloped back with all haste. I lifted it onto my horse in front of me and succeeded in getting him back safely to the fort. Egan, upon recovering, laughingly said, I name you Calamity Jane, hero of the plains. Well, the name stuck, and the press picked it up. She began to be a dime novel, larger-than-life hero. It was after that bathing episode with Cook's regiment that Calamity Jane headed for Deadwood, where she worked as a teamster hauling machinery and supplies to miners in the camps. She also carried the U.S. mail between Deadwood and Custer, which was highly dangerous due to a number of renegade Indians still terrorizing the area. Her route was a 50-mile run through the Black Hills. It was during this time that she met Wild Bill Hickok, who was a regular fixture at the gambling establishments in Deadwood. She later claimed that Bill was the love of her life, and that was probably true, but whether that feeling was mutual, no one knows for sure. She said they were married and had a child together, but that's never been verified. Bill liked his women frilly, sweet-smelling, and feminine. So you figure it out. When Bill was shot and killed, holding his dead man's hand of aces and eights, Jane chased down his killer, Jack McCall, and finally had him cornered in a butcher shop. She had left her guns back at the hotel when she heard someone shouting, Wild Bill's been shot, and came out just in time to see McCall running down the street in the opposite direction. She would have killed him with a handy meat cleaver, were it not for a throng of townspeople that had followed her. They carried McCall to the jail, where he was soon let out, over fears of an Indian attack, and they all needed guns on hand. McCall was to meet his grisly end later. And Calamity was known to have a big heart. Townspeople of Deadwood remember her actions during a smallpox epidemic. She risked her own life often helping to nurse victims back to health, and asked for nothing in return. By the time she'd put a few years on, her exploits were being written or talked about all over the West. Once, when drunk, she rode a bull down the main street of Rapid City. On another occasion, she accompanied a male friend to an opera house. She got bored with a bad performance and spat a mouthful of tobacco juice onto the stage, then shot out a few lamps before leaving. Buffalo Bill Cody even hired her for his Wild West traveling show, but he had to fire her on account of her constant drinking. She was getting older, and her drinking was catching up with her. She'd been a strong, flamboyant personality with a lot of nerve, but she became vulgar and loud-mouthed and preferred to be left alone. Old friends tried to help her, but the usual answer was, leave me alone and let me go to hell on my own route. She ended up wasting away in the house of ill repute, in of all places, Hoare, Montana, spelled H-O-R-R. Sensing her last days were near, she left Montana and made it to Terry, South Dakota, not far from Deadwood, where she died on August 1st, 1903. She had let it be known years earlier that she wanted to be buried next to Wild Bill, and Deadwood honored her wishes. Her marker can be seen next to his today. She was as much a part of the Wild West as the best of them. And then there are the legends. One legend that I've been waiting a long time to get around to is the legend of the Wampus Cat. In the ancient mountains of western Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and even the Carolinas and Florida, stories have been told for centuries about a strange half-human, half-cat that walks on two legs, measures about five feet high, and has a scream like a cross between a mountain lion and a bobcat. And if you've ever been in the woods when a bobcat screams, it'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It did just that to me years ago when I was hiking in the Pocono Mountains in eastern Pennsylvania. You never forget that sound. The tale of the wampus cat comes down from the Cherokee Indians. The legend says that a Cherokee woman dressed herself up in the skin of a mountain lion to spy on the men of her tribe. 
who were meeting secretly at night with their medicine man and having strange rituals. She was caught and cursed by the medicine man, who transformed her into a half-woman, half-cat. Just a silly old legend, of course. The word cattywampus is heard sometimes in the Appalachian communities, and it means a mixed-up situation that can involve screaming and yelling, like a good family feud, possibly fueled by moonshine. Legend or not, the men who work and hunt in those mountains will tell you that some kind of beast has been out there. It's too large to be a bobcat, and, well, there haven't been mountain lions in those mountains for over a century. Most of them who don't believe in old Indian legends will tell you it's just a large wild cat with a mean disposition. But some have seen it standing on its hind legs, and that's where it gets scary. Plus, it has bitten people. Farmers have lost livestock, and campers and hikers have been scared out of their wits by some kind of strange beast. It's usually said to have yellow glowing eyes, and it's often reported as having a fetid smell. Here are a few accounts of encounters with the creature they call the wampus cat. The first begins, I am a mentally well, moderately successful young wife and mother in the deep south, on the edge of the coast, and have been in this beach town my whole life. You get a few miles west from the beach, and you're immediately in the country. My mother's side has lived here as far back as memory serves, and my father is a Sioux whose mother moved him here as a child away from the reservation. Since I can remember, my mother's side of the family has had run-ins with the wampus cat. Legends vary depending on where you are, but commonly around here it said she was a Cherokee woman who snuck into the woods to listen in on a males-only meeting that included the chief and their medicine man. She wore the skin of a cougar as a disguise, but she was found out, and the medicine man cursed her to forever wear the cougar skin. She now stalks people. For what reason? I don't know. But it follows me and my family. Always has. We've gotten so used to the wampus cat, we just expect her when we move to a new house. Or the seasons are changing, we find ourselves in a moment of emotional weakness. When my mother had a rough day being bullied in middle school back in the 80s, she was crying and riding her bike home down a country dirt road. The sun is setting, but it's not dark out yet. Behind her, she hears this shriek. I've heard it before, and it sounds like when an eagle screams, but with that gurgling gutturalness of a cougar's roar. So she turns around and she sees a huge creature, dark matted fur, in a stance like a gorilla stands in when it walks on its knuckles, back legs crouched a bit, chest and head up and supported by the arms on the knuckles. She turns around and races on her bike all the way home. She told her mom what she saw, and she calmly says, That's a wampus cat. They've never hurt us. They just like to spook you. And that was that. So I grew up with a native father, superstitious as all hell, and practically jumping onto the bed to hide when we heard the wampus cat scream in the backyard some nights, while my mom and grandmother just kind of acknowledged, Ah, it's the cat again. And I've gone my whole life with this as a completely normal thing. Even when I got married and my husband was out by the woods with me, we'd hear that scream, see the leaves on the forest floor kick up as it stalked us, never coming too close. And we've just had to realize that the people who didn't grow up in my town, this was a terrifying experience. To me, it's like when you occasionally see a cardinal in the trees. A bit different than the day-to-day, but nothing life-changing. My closest encounter was one night in high school. My friend and I and her boyfriend were sitting on the front porch enjoying the nighttime salt air and the lightning bugs. A huge, gorilla-sized, extremely hairy animal runs up to the front of the porch and screams like hell's opened up. Now, I'm semi-used to the critter, but I don't want it five feet from me. We go to her bedroom, and for about an hour here it's stalking back and forth under her window, 
about ten feet down. Coastal towns have raised houses on stilts in case of hurricanes. Growling, spitting, screaming, rolling around in the foliage, just being pesky and grumpy. Finally, it wanders off, all is quiet, and we fall asleep. Every once in a while, I'll still hear it. It's just life here. This town is extremely haunted. I've grown up a few miles from the Fort Fisher battleground and many historic and tragic places. I have too many unnatural encounters with all sorts of things to put in one post. But that's it. This is really long, jumbled, confusing, and probably a bit boring compared to other posts, but it's my experience with not-so-talked-about creature that's just a part of life to me. Hope you all learned something, and don't go out too late in coastal North Carolina if you're easily scared. Ever wonder how the national anthem came to be played before ball games, and why people doffed their hats and put their hands over their hearts? Back in September of 1918, the World Series was scheduled for Fenway Park in Boston. The Red Sox were playing the Chicago Cubs, and since this was happening during World War I, a number of wounded veterans were there in the stands to enjoy the game. But the start of the game was delayed that day, September 11th, when a dispute arose over money. Go figure, who's ever heard of professional athletes asking for more money? The players went on strike, asking for a bigger share of the World Series purse, and refused to enter the field. Some very hasty negotiations started to take place. Fans were getting rowdy. The owners tried to tell the players that now was not the right time to strike, that there were hundreds of wounded veterans in the stands who wanted to see the game and deserved some respect. It isn't known if any money was promised, but the players did finally agree to take the field, saying, We'll play for the sake of the wounded sailors and soldiers who are in the grandstands. The Boston team owner, caught up by the patriotic fervor and no doubt wanting to ease the tension in the stands, ordered the band to strike up the Star-Spangled Banner, which, although not yet officially our national anthem, was thought of as the most popular choice by most people. It was the first time this uniquely American tune had been played at a sports event. The crowd loved it and showed their respect to the veterans by removing their hats and placing their hands over their hearts. A new tradition was born. The Red Sox went on to win the series, the last World Series pennant they would win in the 20th century. They never should have traded the babe to the Yankees, but that's another story. A Boston Post columnist wrote of the event, Professional baseball is dead, killed by the greed of players and owners. If only he could have seen the future. It's no surprise that some of my favorite history stories take place from the back of a horse. Growing up, I took every available opportunity to find my way to the back of a horse on family vacations, in summer camp, or visiting family friends who owned horses. A few years ago, I finally did manage to be part of a cattle drive in Utah, one of my lifelong dreams, driving a herd to its summer range, and I can still hear the sound of spring calves bawling ringing in my ears. What a memory! I'm currently researching two great stories which will be appearing here in the coming weeks, and I'll give you a bit of a preview here today. The first story is the Chisholm Trail. A little background. When the Civil War ended in 1865, there were an estimated 3 million longhorn cattle in Texas, some on farms and ranches, and others which had been breeding in the wild. By 1866, when Texas was again allowed to drive cattle to other states, Texas cattlemen at first began driving their cattle north across the Red River, across the land of the five civilized tribes, 
in what was then Indian Territory and is now eastern Oklahoma, and then on to the states of Missouri and Arkansas, where the railways began that could transport cattle to the cities in the east, where demand for beef was burgeoning. But Missouri and Arkansas, now filled with returning war veterans who had lost everything but their lives in the war, saw the passing herds as an opportunity to charge outlandish fees for the right to cross their lands, or just deny entrance altogether using the excuse that the herds were bringing yellow fever, and the cattlemen who refused to pay or tried to cross anyway were being beaten, robbed, and often killed, the ultimate price, losing their entire herd. The Texas cattlemen were desperate for another solution, and that answer took shape in the formation of the Kansas Pacific Railway in 1866, which laid rails from the Missouri River west into Kansas, giving the Texas cattlemen a clear route north to Kansas. And in the spring of 1867, men like Jesse Chisholm, part Cherokee, part Scottish, and a curious combination of frontiersmen, businessmen, and Indian trader, saw the opportunity to make money driving herds of cattle to the rails in Kansas, and jumped on it. Expanding on the trader's trail that extended from his trading post in southern Texas, and carving a new path from San Antonio north to Abilene, Kansas, through over 800 miles of plains and rivers, much of it infested with renegade Indians and marauders, Men like Jesse Chisholm and Charles Goodnight carved a trail in history that, as cowboy artist Charlie Russell once said in a letter to the Wyoming Stockmen's Association, could never be plowed under by the farmer. Good men are bad, Russell said. They were the last of the frontiersmen. In our story titled The Chisholm Trail, we'll put you in the saddle to discover a piece of American history that the history books only gloss over today if they tell the story at all. We're also working on the story of Joan of Arc, the heroine of France, and the role she played during the Lancastrian phase of the Hundred Years' War between France and England, the longest continuous war in European history, some say in world history. It was a war which lasted from 1337 to 1453. She arrived on the scene as France was reeling from defeats and a lack in leadership. Joan was a poor peasant girl, not a warrior, not a princess, but a young girl who insisted that she had a vision, given to her, she said, by God, of a better future for France. And she found her way to the top of what power remained in that war-torn country. She was given an army, and literally saved France from becoming another jewel in the English crown. Her story is unlike any other. Her history is well detailed, from the tiny house in the country where she was born, to the castle at Orléans in 1429, where she emerged astride a white charger carrying the white banner of France above the heads of the crowd, wearing a suit of plate armor, her eyes steady, her bearing straight and purposeful. Within weeks her armies swelled as deserters found a new leader, and the people and the warriors rallied behind the Maid of Orléans, and France was about to write a new chapter in history. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's great to have you with us. We'll return with a brand new episode next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone stay safe, and we'll see you then.